From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, a conversation with mega screenwriter and TV creator Larry Karaszewski. Larry and his partner Scott Alexander have made a career of writing offbeat, smart biopics. You've definitely seen them. These are the guys who wrote Ed Wood and The People vs. Larry Flint and Man on the Moon. And they created the TV series The People vs. O.J., They've also written biopics about the actor Bob Crane and the artist Margaret Keane. They've written for Jim Carrey, John Travolta, Ed Norton, Amy Adams, Johnny Depp, Sarah Paulson, oftentimes giving that actor the best role of their career. And their scripts have been directed by Miglos Forman, Tim Burton, Ryan Murphy, and other giants. Larry writes passionate depictions of often overlooked or unexplored figures from pop culture. He breathes new life into them and makes us rethink our assumptions. Before seeing the Woody Harrelson, Courtney Love movie, for instance, I certainly didn't know anything about Larry Flint, other than that he founded Hustler Magazine and was sort of a jerk. Afterwards, I think of Flint as this First Amendment, freedom of speech crusader, who's driven by love and lofty ideals. There's a whole generation of people who think of him that way now. I'm fascinated by the power of the screenwriter to do this. For many of us, Ed Wood, Andy Kaufman, O.J. Simpson, and Robert Shapiro are defined by the way that they're sketched in Larry's movies and on his TV show, which is a huge responsibility, one that Larry clearly thinks about and takes seriously. It's something I've struggled with in writing TV biopics myself, as I'm sure a lot of you have. Now, I don't know Larry, but I am thrilled to get the chance to talk to him about this and about his craft in general. One disclaimer, it's super early in LA right now, so we're catching Larry right as he gets up. He's a champ. Here he is, Larry Karaszewski. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft for their help getting the word out about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and much more. I live in... um the Hollywood Hills. Yeah, have you always lived out there? Oh, no, 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 I'm from uh, Indiana, originally. Oh, okay. But I've been here forever. I mean, I've been here since I was, you know, uh, like 19 years old. Oh, is that right? Um, no New York living? Um, I lived in New York very briefly in the, uh, like, in the 80s. I worked at Tower Records and really? Fourth and Broadway, and my wife is uh, from the city, so, okay. you know, my wife is from the city, and... My kid, my daughter went to Barnard. My son went to NYU. Oh, all right. It's like a, you know, I'm bi, I'm bi coastal and Midwest because I got the Indiana thing. Right. I uh, lived about uh, in Indiana. I lived like you know, hour and a half out of Chicago, which okay. is in Illinois, but I lived in South Bend, Indiana. Right. And um, uh, in terms of the features, have they have they been shot in LA mostly? Have they shot all over? They've shot all over. Although I've been very fortunate. In that, um, uh, a lot of my films have shot in Los Angeles. That is I, really okay. Scott Alexander and I, we sort of chronicled a certain showbiz existence. Right. And, um, um, you know, uh, so a lot of our, you know, whatever, Ed Wood shot, 
you know, like a two mile radius from my home. Is that right? Um, and were you uh, sort of invited onto set? A lot of times oh, yeah, screenwriters yeah. obviously yeah, are. Yeah, we've always kind of, um, particularly in our biopics, um, have been, a, you know, a strong part of the production. Uh, that's a really lucky and kind of a rare thing is that, um, what, what do you attribute that to? Um, uh, part of it is I think is working with directors who have a certain amount of confidence. Yeah. I, mean, I don't think Tim Burton or, um, Milos Forman are going to be in, intimidated by us. But the right. other thing is, I think it's one of the reasons why we've embraced this, this is a genre, the sort of the biopic of, um, of a fairly obscure person, um, in that, um, uh, you know, most of the things we've done, there's no, there was no book on. Right. You know, there wasn't a book on Andy Kaufman. There wasn't a book on, on, uh, you know, uh, uh, Margaret Keene. Um, so when we've done it, we've had to sort of act like journalists, and so we we um, become kind of the experts, with the Doris Kearns Goodwin, or whatever the subject matter right. is. And so uh, when a director comes on. A lot of times, it's very helpful for him or her, whoever it is, to um, to use us as a resource. And you know, it's, it makes sense. I mean, they they can you know, as opposed to being intimidated by, it, they can have their costume department or their production designer call us and say, you know, what did uh, what did Tor Johnson's house really look like? Right. You know, when we we're the ones that have pictures, or we know where the pictures are, or we know how to find or how to get an actor in contact with the real person. You know, that kind of thing. So. Um, we become sort of this, this, this source of information and the truth and where the bodies are buried. Right. And so it's, it's, um, particularly on those, on those, on those movies, it's really kept us as a, as a part of, uh, the production team. Right. That's really smart to make yourself indispensable by pecking figures that you can become the world's expert on. Yeah. Um, well, also the, the, you know, it's, um, uh, you know, writers can be replaced and all that kind of thing. Right. But uh, and usually are. Um, you know, uh, it's a little harder in this kind of movie, but because there has to be a certain level of expertise. Mm-hmm. You can't just come in and um, and you know you have to kind of come in and do six months of research. Right. <laughs> and. And so we've never been, we've never been replaced on any of our. That's a, that's I mean that's an incredible stat right there because you know n- I would say ninety percent of you know studio movies have the writers replaced at some point. I mean we've been replaced on like you know family comedies, Problem Child. We were replaced on you know uh-huh. we were not replaced. I think you know we've never been replaced on one of our biopics. And you know what's also amazing is that um, I mean what's what's so smart is that you have such a. Um, uh, such a strong voice um, in all of your movies that it that also makes you incredibly hard to replace because mimicking that voice and that style um, would be pretty tricky for a writer who's coming yeah. in for onset rewrites. Yeah, I, I also think that uh, at this point, at least, uh, people who are coming on board, sort of, you know, either you want to, you know, you want to make a Scott and Larry movie, you don't want to make a Scott and Larry movie, right? You know. Right. And there's a, there's a there is a tone and a and sort of a a satiric thing that happens in our movies and maybe that's not your thing you know what I mean mm-hmm. I, but then I don't know why you you signing up right. or you know there are definitely are times when you know we talk when we are working with a director and it's you know that that sort of comedy that we mix with the with the um you know uh, with the realism uh, kind of um. You know, can, it can make people nervous, right? You know, 
um, we that's the thing that's the thing we love that we love the idea of mixing tones and you know that's what, I think it's one of the reasons why we got along so well with Milos Forman who I think really was probably the master at that you know think of something like Cuckoo's Nest which is probably the the most perfectly mixed tone movie of all time it's hysterically funny right uh, it's tragic it's dramatic it's you know it's got everything right yeah completely um, did you did you have that voice when you guys first started working together or is that something that you built over time. Um, I think we had that voice all along. Um, you know, it definitely came, uh, out more, you know, when we wrote Ed Wood, Uh um, and that was pretty early in our career. Uh, it's sort of where it all kind of came together because it wasn't really a, a genre movie, you know, if you're writing, um, uh, you know, a comedy, it's pretty much, it, it stays in its lane. Uh, and I think we, I mean, I think we still kind of consider ourselves comedy writers in the sense that we write like comedy writers. We, you know, there's two of us in a room bat- battling back and forth. And that's the, you know, the old Dick Van Dyke show kind of st- style mm-hmm. of writing, um, or your show of shows. Uh, but, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, what we found, I think probably when writing it would, is that you can, you know, there are very sad things in that, that, um, you know, but that doesn't mean that the things can't be humorous as well, because that's kind of what life is. Right. That's once again, I'll bring Milos in that connection where he would always say that you know that that is that's the that's what happens. You know, and, and we would kind of you know the easiest place to make someone giggle in real life is a funeral. <laughs> you know, because there's the, the, the somberness it makes you point in the other direction, and people are constantly in real life mixing tones you know right. <laughs> sorry your your day in your life is a, is a great big mixture of tones right completely um and is that something you and scott i mean it sounds like you guys um you talk about explicitly um rather than just something uh, sort of a style that you both happen to be attracted to i think we talk about it explicitly but it is, i feel like it also just comes natural to us uh-huh how did you yeah. hook up with scott uh scott was my freshman roommate at usc oh wow um we uh we were fresh, and then we wound up writing a script our our senior year of college and um it it sold shortly after we graduated and we started been writing ever since yeah and i'm kind of fascinated by this my writing partner is in los angeles and so we're just const- i'm in new york and so we constantly just um you know one of us takes a pass and then emails it to the other and the other sends back notes or takes right. another pass you guys sit in a room which yeah. is pretty rare for drama i mean you mentioned comedy examples but you guys do that for Man on the Moon and for Everything. Larry Flint? We've never written any other way. Hmm. And and so how does it work? Does one person sit at the keyboard? Do you have an assistant Absolutely. with a keyboard? No, uh, Scott's the keyboard person. Okay. Scott's the keyboard person. Are you laying down on the couch? I'm, uh, that's, that's what I like. Yeah. <laughs> I lay on the, on the couch or I pace around the room or, start, right. you know. Uh, uh, but yeah, you know, uh, Scott is, you know, just, really good at what he does. Right. He so knows how to touch type. He knows he's, he's, he's a speed demon. And, um, um, you know, it, it, I, it's also very important. I think that, you know, he's a, he's a, he, we both believe in the sort of the architecture of the page where the page has a certain layout and things like this, but he's, um, you know, he's a, he's a master at it. So, hmm. I, you know, I will, I will come around and look at, look at the page and things like this, but it's really, uh, um, it's this, you know, it's we, it's sort of it's a forest trees kind of relationship. Yeah, and do you often um, do you often read aloud to each other? Uh, we do not read aloud to each other. Actually, it's funny. Milos used to always do that. We we get together and we'd read the scripts. 
uh, we don't do that, but we do a lot of um, um, <laughs> we do a lot of reading, which is which sounds silly when you when you say you know of course you do if you're a writer you got to uh, but I'm always shocked at how many people give me a script and have me read it and it's clear that they they barely read it yeah when when one of our scripts says uh, you, you get it and it says first draft it means there's probably been 50 drafts right. before that right. Um, our, you know, one of our other secrets, I think, is we write very long. We, um, you know, an average first printout of one of our scripts would be 180 pages mm-hmm. or bordering on 200 pages. And then we spend several months cutting that down to a normal length script. And I think that's, uh, uh, that's another one of our secrets to our success is that, that not everything you write is great. Right. So, um, you know, if we have a lot of material, we can we're able to sort of like, you know, um, uh, keep the gems and move things around and and oh, there's this this scene actually is not very good, but there's three good lines. But every everything on the page has to fight for its existence. So you can't be that precious about it. And what do you do when you have a disagreement about, um, you know, you love a scene and he hates the scene? It's usually the scene stays in. I mean, uh, you know, um, at least that round. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, we certainly have arguments that we, you know, revisit all the time. <laughs> sure. Um, but, uh, you know, um, the, you know, we, we tend to, the, it's about, it's a, you know, I mean, hopefully you respect the, the person. You try to see what they, uh, you know, why they like a certain thing. But right. um, uh, it's, the it, reason it's there is that we both at some point agreed on it. Right, um, and so now you're just trying to, you know, fight for existence, and um, uh, you know, a lot of times it'll be you you fight for the things you like, and by the third go around, you know, the, if your if your script's 190 pages, the first time you go around and cut it, then it gets down to 170 pages, right. and you go around again, then now it's 100, now it's 150 pages, right. so, and then so you know you start you sort of have to really take a, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the consensus forms i think yeah um and i mean i'm just i'm curious do you have any other um maybe rules isn't the right word but you you write so many biopics of course about so many real life people mm-hmm. um needless to say it's 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 your guy's point of view about this person's life right. um i love that david mamet quote it's i'm gonna butcher it but it's something along the lines of my job is not to write accurately it's to write convincingly um, do you have any rules about, you know, putting words in, in a, in a real life figure's mouth? Um, uh, you know, when it's, o- when it's okay to completely make something up and when it's okay not to. I, I think our, our, our stuff surprisingly stays very, very close to the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some of the people we, we, um, we do are kind of obscure, so you don't, you know, you, there isn't that much known. Right. But on some of those figures in Ed Wood's life, for example. Um, uh, but in that case, it's almost even more important to sort of um, not be accurate, but 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 since this is going to be the definitive depiction of that figure, probably, um, do, do you feel even more responsibility to sort of get it right, whatever that means? Well, I think, it, I, I mean, I do think we get it right. I think it's, yeah. it's not a, um, um, we, we're, we're in, you know, I think we're, we're uh, this stuff appeals to us because of the whole truth is stranger than fiction right. aspect of it, which I think has allowed us to make really extremely interesting off the beaten track kind of movies in an era which that's kind of not possible. Right. Um, uh, so you know, uh, you know, the 
you cannot, the idea of putting people's words in people's mouth, of course we're putting words in people's mouths. Of course we're doing it from our, our POV. Um, it's not, it's not, you know, documentaries are for someone's POV. People always think for some reason, you know, it's like you, you, you have something you want to say about a, an incident or, or a person, and that's, that's kind of what's coming out in your, your piece. Um, so it's, it's, uh, the bias is always there. It's, and I think that's not, that's not, that's not a bad thing. Right. Um, it's actually called a point of view, which is, um, uh, but right. you don't want to, you, you know, you don't want to, um, distort, uh, in a sense, what, what, uh, certain things that occurred. So you, you, you know, you do, you present them from the angle of, of what you actually think happened. And the thing of it is when you read, um, you know, uh, some things on OJ where there were like, you know, people written every, every single person in the trial, you know, wrote a book and you read their 10 books and there's 10 different versions of an event. So you, you wind up like, you know, what makes sense, right. what makes dramatic sense, what makes, you know, and, and in a sense, the, uh, the, uh, Milos used to say, you know, it's, it's, you know, you always have to. You should be true to the spirit of the facts. You can't, you know, you can't know exactly what was said in, in a room, but you know, kind of what happened after that. Right. So, what led people to make that decision? Completely, yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things I love so much about your OJ series that so many um, different uh, figures get their own point of view, and so yeah. of course, that's all going to be subjective. From well, that their was point very important to us in, in the OJ thing, which is sort of different than our a lot of our other pieces where. Um, we took more of a Robert Altman approach to the O.J. trial, which was sort of like, you know, everybody on the O.J. trial thought they were the star right. of the O.J. trial. Right. <laughs> and so when, you know, it uh, and part of the reason why the, the uh, you know, there's been so much um, diverse, you know, diverse opinions about that thing is that everyone was looking from their own point of view. Right. And so we wanted, one of our, one of our, Goals was that if you came into the show, you know, hating Marsha Clark, you would, you by watching the show, you would understand Marsha Clark. If you came into the show thinking that you know Johnny Cochran was a peacock who just you know, who manipulated things, you would understand why Johnny Cochran did what he did. Right. You know, everybody, even you know Kardashian, we we looked at as a as a sympathetic figure. We were trying to say, you know, what were, what were these people going for? Completely, yeah. And that episode, Marsha, 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 I remember the Marsha Clark Centered episode yeah. was one of my favorite episodes of the whole year yeah. um, uh, of anything. I thought it was it was just so well done getting into her mindset and how difficult it must have been for her completely subverting, you know, what we thought we knew about her from yeah. the tabloids and, you know, yeah. CNN. Yeah. Um, and you did well, the same. Because it's so easy to, um, you know, here's an example of, you know, it was so easy to laugh at Marsha. Right. So easy to make fun of the, make fun of the haircut. Um, but for us, it was about like, you know, I, I, right. Look, look at, from Marsha's point of view, right. You know, that the, you know, and the haircut is, the haircut is funny. It's a, that's actually a very, very funny episode, but it's a, it's exact, it's exactly the kind of thing that, that, uh, that we strive for in the sense that it's a, it's a, it's a funny episode, but oh my God, you just, you're, it feels so painful at the same time. Right. Right. And again, right. That's, that's your guys, um, that that sort of trademark style of mixing the the genres. I I remember laughing a lot, but I also what I remember most from that episode is the the last moment when she sort of slumps down onto the ground and yeah. Chris puts his arm around her. Yeah. It's just such a powerful, emotional, yeah. sad moment. Yeah, Darden's another figure that I think you know we we strove for to help people understand because you know there was not a particularly sympathetic view of Chris Darden out there in the world. Right. Or show. 
Right. And he was just put in such a, you know, impossible position. Right. Do you ever do research on a character, uh, on a real life figure, and find that you just, um, I don't know, you, your points of your point of view is just so opposite his, or you just find him so detestable that it becomes difficult to, um, you know, give him a fair treatment, whatever that means. Um, I don't think so. I don't think we really, um, you know. Uh, I don't. I don't know if we would write about a person like that. Yeah. You know, there's certainly uh, you know bad guys in our things. I mean, OJ, OJ, for example, is certainly not a, a sympathetic figure, but right. OJ is a sympathetic figure in OJ's mind. Right. You know, I'm not even sure OJ knows if he did it or not right. <laughs> at this point. Uh, you know, so so he was he was an interesting character to write because um, you know because of his kind of this, uh, his his sense of uh, privilege and, and stardom and, and where he came from. I mean, there's so much, and, you know, there's so much going on with OJ that it was, that, that, that was an easy go. I mean, someone like Walter Keene, um, you know, is a, you know, a pretty horrible person. Um, but once again, that sense of hucksterism right. uh, made him a fun character to write. I mean, actually, you know, characters can, you know, you don't have to be, a good guy to be fun to write. Right. And, I, you know, that's really smart to just sort of get into, uh, even if it's a villainous character, to get into his point of view because, right, as you totally. said, nobody because realizes they're, they're, no bad they're a bad guy. Right. No, Hitler didn't think he was a bad guy. Right, right. You know, I mean, it's just like, they're, 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 you know. Also, here's the thing that, that I think Scott and I do a, a pretty good job at is, is avoiding the inevitability of history. Uh-huh. That's so much... Uh, stuff that's based on true uh, events is just presented as if this is the way it happened. Right. In the sense that that's sort of like manifest destiny of like there's no other way this thing could have happened. <laughs> right. Our, everything we do is always about how just what, how random shit winds up being in the sense of that it could have happened 10,000 different ways, but things spun out of control or things, you know, things happened, you know, that was, that was one of the, um, I think our, uh, the the best things we always heard about the OJ piece was like that people knew the people sort of knew the general things of what happened. They didn't understand why it happened. Right. They knew they were just really that's why that's why this happened or that's that's how that you know people were constantly shocked at that that uh, you know uh, just just pull, the fact we put the layer away. Right. And I mean, I love that you guys decided to start on the the Rodney King mm-hmm. um, incident because that really frames. Yeah. Uh, the whole OJ uh, situation from, uh, you know, your point of view from a very specific point of view. Well, you asked earlier, I think your first question was something about, like, you know, has my movie shot in Los Angeles? Yeah. And I think, you know, so, so much of our stuff shoots in Los Angeles because I think Scott and I have a point of view on the city, and we really are trying to create a body of work that actually says something about our city, and particularly OJ was that. Right. And, uh, you know, you have to set the plate. Right. You have to set, like, this is Los Angeles in that time period. This is what was happening this is why this is you know uh, this is this is why things tumbled a certain direction right yeah completely um i want to uh i want to play a quick clip from your work um so i asked you um what you might want to listen to and you picked a clip from edward edward is a young director who hasn't found any success yet and in this scene he meets his hero bella lugosi um so let's just play the clip quickly and then uh, we'll talk about it Boy, Mr. Legosi, you must lead such an exciting life. When is your next picture coming out? I have no next picture. You gotta be joking. A great star like you, you must have dozens of them lined up. 
Back in the old days, yes. Now no one gives two fucks for the bail. But you're a big star. No more. I haven't worked in 40 years. This business, this town, it chews you up, then spits you out. I'm just an ex-boogeyman. Make a right. Don't want the classic horror films anymore. Today, it's all giant bucks. Giant spiders, giant grasshoppers. Who would believe such nonsense? <laughs> the old ones were much spookier. They had castles, full moons. They were mythic. They had a poetry to them. Yes. And you know what else? The women. The women prefer the traditional monsters. The women? The pure horror, it both repels and attracts them. Because in their collective unconsciousness, they have the agony of childbirth. Oh. The blood. The blood is horror. You know, I never thought of that. Take my word for it. If you want to make out with a young lady, take her to see Dracula. What a mess. My wife of 20 years left me last month. I'm not much of a housekeeper. All right, I'm coming. I'll feed you, my darlings. I'll feed you. Well, I'd better get going. But uh, perhaps we could get together again sometime, Mr. Lagosi. Certainly. But now the children of the night are calling me. <laughs> Good day. Good day. That's such a great scene. Um, and that's uh, Johnny Depp as Ed Wood and Martin Landau as Bella Lugosi. Uh, do you remember writing the scene at all? Um, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> what can you tell us about, about um, it? I, you know, um, we had uh, sort of built the entire movie around the idea of um, Ed and Bella love story. Hmm. That it was one of the things that was going to make the movie not... Uh, simply be like, ha, 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 this guy makes bad movies. What makes him special? What makes what makes it different? And the fact that he really took care of this older, dying, drug-addicted, uh, uh, but very eloquent uh, movie star during this time period, um, it, it really felt like this was like this was the major relationship in Ed's life. Um, and so um, we... Uh, uh, we, we, you know, I think the first time we met Tim Burton, we were sort of saying this, this it's Ed and Bella love story, hmm. and he totally 100 percent got it. And so, if anything, this is this is the first date. Right. <laughs> he even ends right. with the uh, uh, well, perhaps we can get together again sometime, which is I mean, it's very very much a first date, right. uh, getting to know you thing. Where um, and did you take the structure of your favorite romantic comedies for the movie? No. Okay. I mean, just it's, unless it's just it's purely ingrained in our head. Right. You know, they definitely meet cute. It's it's we you know we we uh, you know uh, uh, Ed did not. This is for example, you're asking about truth and stuff like this. We don't really. Uh, I don't think I actually know how Ed met Bella Lugosi, but he certainly didn't meet him buying a coffin in a, in a Hollywood Boulevard uh, coffin shop. Right. Um, but we we like to introduce our characters in um, an iconic way. Yeah. If you, uh, you know, sort of, uh, you meet Johnny Cochran 
in a closet full of colorful suits. Right. You know, uh, so <laughs> you meet Bela Lugosi, uh asleep in a coffin. Right. You know, uh, <laughs> there, there. You know, you meet Tor Johnson in a wrestling ring. Right. You know, you've got to, you got to introduce these people. Club. You know, bam! You introduce them the way they're they're meant to be introduced. Right. Yeah. Give know. them a mythic opening. Correct. Yeah. And so that was the, uh, you know, that that I guess when we're talking about it precedes this scene by like thirty seconds or so. But uh, yeah. So uh, and um, uh, we. Um, you know, it was sort of a, you know, the idea of the two guys feeling each other out. And there was, we also, uh, when we're doing our research, we, um, we just circle interesting facts or interesting, um, you know, uh, quotations. Mm-hmm. And we kind of keep them as a, either sometimes they're divided by subject matter, sometimes they're just put into the general, um, you know, uh, fun facts catalog, and right. uh, when you're writing a scene, sometimes you know you just you take a quick glance at them, and you you know figure out how to put put them in here and there. Um, uh, and this don't I mean that particular scene is full of a bunch of them. You know, it just sort of really gets to it gets <laughs> it tells you what Bella Gossi was, but where Bella Gossi is currently. You know, and and without being a uh, a scene that is, is full of uh, exposition, it sort of secretly is full of exposition. Right. Um, I mean, and they no one gives two fucks for Bella. Right. Um, the uh, but like um, um, uh, I remember a particular speech. Or I think when we circled it uh, or, uh, or added it to our list, we had no idea where it was going to go. But Bella uh, somewhere is quoted with that um, bit about um, uh, the agony of childbirth. Right. <laughs> it's horror. And it's just completely like, what the, what the hell is this guy talking about? It's kind of interesting all at the same time. Yeah. And so when we sort of were writing the scene and we were having him complain about the, the movies of the day, we were, you know, we were like, hey, can we work this in? And so you know, we worked that in. So that's a way of just you know, kind of like working in a real thing Bella said in the middle of you know, our created scene. Right. And so do you mean that you keep like um, a pile of research of like these great speeches or it's on your desktop somewhere and you just know to no, go back no, no, to no. it? It's, it's more like we have a, um, you know, we create, we, we create research books that, yeah. you know, break up, uh, because like I said, it's not, most of our stuff's not based on, there wasn't a book on Larry Flint when we wrote Larry Flint, but so we'd have to do a research and we'd break it down to like, you know, Larry in Ohio, you know, Larry's uh, arrested. Larry gets arrested, Larry's conviction, Larry in prison, Larry, you know, and so it'd be like all that kind of stuff. So when you get to that section of the script, you can sort of like take your take 10 minutes and look at that and say, all right, what have we got to do? What's, right. what's good here? I'll look at that. That's kind of good. Otherwise, your research just goes uh, to nothing. You know, you read something and six months later you're doing a scene and you don't remember where anything was or what it was. Right. Completely. Yeah, um, you, can't, you can you can be very. Here's the thing: you gotta be careful, though. You're not just completely overwhelmed by research, though, right? Because you you know you do that, and it's, you, you still got to clear your head to actually write a scene. Do you um, purposely give yourself a break between research and writing, or do they overlap? Uh, they over. I mean, you do. I mean, basically, you do research until you you uh, you know until you realize you're just postponing writing by researching. Right. At a certain point, you just you know you're just coming across the same stories, or you're just you know. And certainly you just got to write the script. Um, and I know you're a big movie buff. Do you, when you're starting a new project, do you watch old movies in a similar genre or movies um, to inspire you about whatever it is you're writing? Yes. 
Um, so can you give us an example for OJ, for instance? Do you remember what you watched? I mean, OJ was more, was, was, we didn't really watch trial films, but we watched, um, I mean, I think the movies that really inspired us on that thing were, um, uh, uh, and it was more about attitude and about, uh, I mean, like, like the, we, I think the attitude of, of Dog Day Afternoon. Oh, cool. Kind of, it was something spinning out of control, and you sort of understand all the different sides, but it's like you know, no one is necessarily doing the right thing, no one's doing the wrong thing, you know. It's a That's lot, interesting. It's a, 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 you know, and it's based on a true story, and yet it's very, very funny. Yeah. And very sad and very suspenseful all at the same time. Um, we looked at uh, all the president's men in the sense of you knew how the story was going to end. You knew what right. was, everything was leading to, yet it was still worked as a suspense piece. Right. You know, United 93 is kind of another film like that where you know how everything's going to happen, but the mere idea that you're watching it, knowing what's going to happen actually actually creates more tension than less tension. I, mean, I think that's one of the secrets of our episode in Penn, which, you know, uh, it was sort of like a, a certain point you thought, oh, my God, we get to finally get to the end, and it's like, oh, everyone knows what happened, so how can it be suspenseful? Right. But by drawing it out and by, just, by knowing the inevitable thing that happens, it makes everything else more painful. And then, you know, another uh, network was certainly a, a touchstone in, um, hmm. in, uh, in, on the OJ thing just because it was, you know, a sense of, the, of realism and absurdity. All reality the TV, of, of, yeah. of you know mass media out of control, uh, right. and the and, and national, and national in the sense of a multi-character piece where, just you know, um, like I said, once again, saying every everybody is a everybody thinks is the star of their own scene. Right, right. There are no supporting players. Um, but my God, all the presidents men, Dog Day Afternoon, Network. Does it does it feel you don't get intimidated at all? I guess watching well, these extraordinary. Well, I think with OJ, we were aiming high. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that's also a key thing for a lot of our stuff. And I'm always always surprised that when people don't aim high. You know. Yeah. <laughs> I remember we had a terrible test screening um, uh, for uh, one of our comedies, um, one of the Problem Child movies or something. And and you know, the, the test person always you know asks you what you what the, the crowd what the, what you rated the movie, and this guy wrote rated it good or. You know, great. And the guy, the guy said, "Well, why didn't you rate it excellent?" And the guy said, "Well, I don't think the movie was trying to be excellent." <laughs> <laughs> and he was right; it wasn't trying to be excellent. Right? Why would you rate that movie excellent? Right. Um, that being said, some you know, when we write these other movies, we are trying to be excellent. Right. But OJ, we realized that. I mean, Scott and I had never done television before, and the reason I think we wound up uh, doing this thing is that we. We thought this was the medium for this piece. This was, you know, this could be, uh, you know, I, I'm. Uh, our t- we were trying to make the greatest show of all time. I, whether we did or not, I have no idea. But it, we were trying to just, you know, we knew that the subject matter was there, the time length was there, the, the, you know, we were, we were, we were aiming for excellence. I love that. Um, so I feel that way about. I'm a big rock and roll person, and. I feel like there's there are not that many bands who are trying to be the greatest band of all time. Right. And so when a band comes along, you know, uh, you know, say what you wanted about U2, U2 started off even when they're 18 years old. They wanted to be the greatest rock and roll band of all time. You know, Kanye West wants to be the greatest rapper of all time. Right. You know, he want, he, he did, you know, he, think whatever you want to about him. He is trying to be the goat, you know. Right. I mean, I'm I'm curious what you think. You know, my guess of of why a lot of 
times people are not trying for excellence is because um, there, especially in movies, there's so many um, barriers to go through. There, you're going to get studio notes, you're going to get network notes, you're going to get producer notes. The director's going to take it over. The editor's going to do what he does with it. And if you um, if you try too hard, and if you you know put your heart and soul into it, it's going to be a recipe for heartache. Do you think that's um, part of what is behind it? Isn't that what Bella Lugosi just said? <laughs> it's similar. Yeah. It's down, it beats you up, it spits you out. Uh, <laughs> right. um, sure, but it has, how about this? All those people are going to make it a little worse, probably. So why don't you start with excellence? <laughs> how it wears down, maybe it's just really, really good. Love it. That's very smart. Um, I want to uh, I want to go out here uh, playing another clip. Um, I asked you uh, for a scene from someone else's work uh, that you did not write, but that you were interested in from a craft perspective, and you chose a movie called Cooley High from 1975. Um, the film follows two best friends celebrating the final weeks of senior year at Cooley High School. And this story has sort of a tragic turn. In this scene, Preach, uh, played by Glenn Terman, stands over his best friend Cochise's grave. Um, so I want to play it as we go out. So before that, can you just tell us a little bit about uh, why you like the movie or why you like the scene so much? Um, I think it's one of the great soliloquies in, in movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, very rarely does a movie just stop cold for someone to sort of give a speech. And, and uh, I think Glenn Turman is absolutely amazing in the scene. It's, it's, uh, it's, I think it's a, just a terrific movie. It was actually uh, it was a movie that was, I think, made because they were trying to do the black version of, uh, I think AIP wanted to do the black version of American Graffiti. Hmm. Uh, and it was sold that way. It's sort of just like, a, you know, um, and... I actually think in the end of the day it might be better than American Graffiti. It, it actually sort of it, 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 uh, um, the the director Michael Schultz did an amazing job of just playing everything pretty real. And it, 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 it's a movie that that um, that uh, has stood the test of time. And it's uh, uh, it's a it's a kind of thing that's that uh, I'm I'm a big fan of. A movie that sort of like wasn't considered. Uh, you know, like one of the best films of its year, but it is now, you know, uh, it uh, it clearly was then, and it clearly is now, and um, uh, over time, it's, it's it's become a more and more important film. Right, and it's interesting, you know, earlier in the conversation, you said um, something about how there's nothing more funny uh, than standing at a grave, you know, mm-hmm. than, than being in a funeral. And this scene, you know, this movie is very funny, um, but this moment is, you know, incredibly right. emotional. Correct. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, listen, Larry. Thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to us. Well, it was, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah. Um, okay. Let's play the scene. For the dudes who ain't here. Huh? Man. You know, sometimes I'd be walking down the street or sitting around, and I look up. And I expect to see you coming around the corner. I hear your voice calling my name or something. I almost expect you to go to Hollywood with me. Uh, I know. Hey, don't worry, man. I'm going to make it. I can lie and steal too good not to survive. <laughs> Put it in the guys. They're going to be all right, man. They're going to make it. Yeah, we were sitting around the other night. We got high. <laughs> man. And I told him, man, I said, look, Cheese wouldn't want y'all just sitting around wasting time, you know. 
They're going to make it. They're going to make it. Man, I have so much to tell you. I wrote a poem for you. Nigga, I know you don't like poetry, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. I ain't never read my poetry for nobody, not even my mama. See a damn thing. It goes. We were friends a long time ago. Laughing, rapping, chasing girls, obeying no laws except the one of caring. Basketball days and high nights. No tomorrows. Unable to remember yesterday. We live for today. don't rhyme Jeez. you could have been the greatest man you could have been swish That was great. Um, Thank you so much to our producer here at the Yelp Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please subscribe. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.